And the Old Testament reading is found in Hosea 11, verses 8 through 9. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart winces within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I won't act on the heat of my anger. I won't return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a human being, the Holy One in your midst. I won't come in harsh judgment. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. While we were still weak at the right moment, Christ died for ungodly people. It isn't often that someone will die for a righteous person, Well, maybe someone might dare to die for a good person. But God shows his love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So now that we have been made righteous by his blood, we can be even more certain that we will be saved from God's wrath through him. If we were reconciled to God through the death of his son while we were still enemies— Now that we've been reconciled, how much more certain is it that we will be saved by his life? The word of the Lord. And if you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke 15, verses 20 through 24. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fatted calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate the gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the way that you speak to us, calling us, coming after us, rescuing us. So we pray this morning that you would, Holy Spirit, by the word of God, summon us, call us to yourself, we pray. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you feeling this Sunday morning, January 10th? Good to see you. It's chilly outside. Slightly less chilly in here. (laughs) Uh, All of you joining us online, great to see you. If you're on Facebook or YouTube, send up some likes, comments, hearts, thumbs, emojis, bitmojis, memojis, whatever it is you want to do to say hello. Everyone in the room, say hello to the folks joining us online. (laughs) Greet them. We miss you. We love you. We're thinking about you while you're uh, watching online. We're glad that you can do that. Um, How is the new year going for you guys? 
Uh, interesting, isn't it? When, when New Year's Eve happened, everyone was like, oh, thank God, that was beha- that's behind us now, as if, right? As if a new year guarantees no more troubles. Uh, I also am curious how you're doing with your New Year's resolutions. Anybody? We're 10 days into the new year. How, how are some of those things going? As for me, uh, I had a bowl of ice cream yesterday. So... There's that. That was not part of the plan. Probably might have one more today. Also not technically part of the plan. Uh, a few, last weekend, Holly and I were away on a, a little retreat in town at a retreat center. And we try to do this every year at the beginning of the year to kind of reflect back on the year gone and, and to say, Lord, where did we meet your love and your joy this year? And Lord, where were the, 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 you know, the griefs and losses of the previous year? Where did we fail to give and receive love? Where did we uh, where were we faithful to give and receive love? And then we kind of listen for a word uh, for the year ahead and write down some things. And, and I, I, we, I, we really are, are big fans of resolutions that are oriented around rhythms rather than results. Because sometimes we're not in control of results, but we can sort of, you know, try to uh, build in some rhythms in our life. But here's the thing, you guys. You're going to fail, <laughs> No matter what your resolutions are, whether they're goal-oriented or not, result-oriented or not, or whether they're rhythms, habits, practices, calendars, at some point, even the most spiritual of aims, we will fall short. And there's a choice that we have to make when we, when we arrive at those moments. One is to sort of deny it and to say, no, I didn't fail. This was what I wanted all along. And the other, we move the target, you know, and then you always hit all your goals. <laughs> the other approach is to not live in denial, but to sort of double down and say, well, I'm going to do better next time and I'll make sure. And I, instead of reading one chapter of the Bible, I'm going to read 10 chapters a day. I will make up for this, Lord. You know? and, we can, and neither approach seems to work. And one of the questions maybe that, that eats away at us at the more serious parts of our life is, what happens when we are unfaithful? What happens when, as we pray every week in the prayer of confession, we have not loved you, Lord, with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves? What happens when we haven't been unfaithful with a bowl of ice cream, but there's been a, a failure or an unfaithfulness with the Lord or with others, because those moments will happen? And the question before us, even on this January 10th, is... What will God do when he finds unfaithfulness in us? Today we're starting a new series called Everyday Prophets, a series on the minor prophets. And it's called Everyday Prophets because these prophets were not um, professional trained prophets. They didn't sort of grow up one day. So I think I'm going to uh, desire to be a prophet. In fact, most of these guys were farmers and shepherds and vine dressers and merchants. And all of a sudden the word of the Lord came to them. And they began to speak to the people around them. And, 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 and sometimes people listen, most often they didn't. And in fact, when we have these books, it, it's very likely that it was over a period of time that their message got compiled. And, and it might be for the sake of others to hear it more than just sort of their immediate community. And they're called the minor prophets, not because they're less important than the major uh, prophets. They're called the minor prophets because their books are shorter. 
So the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they get long books. The minor prophets have, are shorter. They're, they're, they just have not as much to say. They could, uh, you know, they may not write you a long-form think piece about what's happening in the world, but they might fire off a tweet, you know. That's the minor prophets. They're going to they're give you a short a sort of word from the Lord. And this morning, we're going to look at Hosea. And our approach through each of these books, we're going to take one prophet per week, one book per week. And even though these are prophets that prophesied in Israel and in Judah a long time ago, this is part of our Bible. This is Christian scripture. And so our goal is to hear God speaking to us through these everyday prophets as scripture. And so our prayer each week is to say, okay, Holy Spirit, so what do you want to say to us through Hosea? And the banner, the, the, the title this morning is, Why God Can't Quit You and Won't. Now, I know some of you are like, well, God can't quit. Shouldn't it be quit on you? No, man, it's not how the kids say it. And maybe some of you are like, wait, there's an old Led Zeppelin song, I Just Can't Quit You, Baby. Yeah, true. And there's, there's an Ariana Grande song, not a good one, that also uses that phrase. And so we're trying to put this in a bit of our slang, a bit of our vernacular to say, when we listen to Hosea's message, we find a God who can't quit you and won't. Hosea 1 verse 1, the Lord's word that came to Hosea, Beeri's son, in the days of Judah's kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and in the days of Israel's king, Jeroboam, Joash's son. The first question we want to sort of set up, maybe to set up this book, is what was going on here? Who is Hosea? Uh, we know that he was a prophet in the northern region of Israel. So you may not be aware of this, but, you know, great King David, then his son Solomon. After that, the kingdom split in two. It became a divided kingdom. And you had a, a kingdom to the north that, that kept the name Israel. Sometimes they were referred to by shorthand as Ephraim or Samaria. And then a kingdom to the south that was known as Judah. Now, Hosea is prophesying primarily to this northern kingdom. And he lived in a time, you notice that even from verse 1, where it names all these kings of Judah, but it names one king of Israel. He's prophesying in a time of great political stability. It's the longest running dynasty uh, in, in Israel, the house of Jehu, Jeroboam II. Probably, if you're into finding a, a date for this, probably around 760 B.C right before the, the fall, uh, the invasion by, by Assyria happens in 722. Now, it's also not only a time of great political stability, but also a time of great prosperity. And it's interesting because I find, and maybe you found, discovered this too, that in those moments of life where you're facing adversity and where you're desperate for God, it's kind of, sometimes it can feel like it's easier to hear God. Because you're like, I'm just so raw right now and I need him and oh, he's with me and you're crying in church all the time. But oftentimes when we're doing well, that's when it's difficult to hear God. Because we're like, I'm, I'm doing great. I don't need you, God. Oh, yeah, thanks, God. You're my little mascot on the dashboard, Jesus, you know, little hula Jesus or whatever, bobblehead, you know. Thanks, Jesus, gotcha, you know. And you're just cruising because life is great. I think we discover in the prophets that when Israel was in times of prosperity, God had to work harder to get their attention. You look at the book of Judges, they, they get overrun. They're like, help. God's like, I got it. I'm right here, you know. But in Hosea, they're living in security and prosperity, and God's like, okay, I need to get your attention. Your attention. Hosea, go marry a prostitute. Like, That's a little shocking. Correct. 
our, our hope for you each week is to tell you which prophet we're teaching on next week is Joel. And uh, our goal is to give you a heads up so you can read the book ahead of time. Or maybe even listen to it on audio Bible. I was listening to Hosea this week in the message, a paraphrase, and it's quite shocking. <laughs> I was going through the Starbucks drive through and was listening to a couple chapters, and I thought, I better pause this so they don't hear what's being said. This, this is a, a little saucy. And when you listen to Hosea, you're like, man, this is a dramatic message. It's true. And God's trying to get their attention. In fact, only a few years after Hosea, he's prophesying in a time of security and prosperity, and he's warning about destruction and judgment. It's only a few years later that Assyria would come, a few decades later that Assyria would come. And so there's three themes, three threads that are woven throughout the book that I want us to kind of use to guide us this morning. The first is this, Hosea shows us what sin looks like. Hosea shows us what sin looks looks like. Hosea 1 verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a prostitute and have children of prostitution. For the people of the land commit great prostitution by deserting the Lord. Right off the bat, God instructs Hosea to act and act a prophetic word. And he says, because this is the metaphor. This is the picture. When Israel's wondering, what have we done? What's so bad about what we're doing? I want them to know that what they have done is adultery. Hosea's picture for us, Hosea wants us to know what sin looks like. Hosea shows us what sin looks like, and it looks like this. Sin is spiritual adultery. Sin is spiritual infidelity, spiritual unfaithfulness. Sometimes when when um, I'm doing premarital or even on a, a, a marriage ceremony on a wedding day, I'll say to the couple, this is the end of your lives as you have known it. And there's always a little nervous laughter in the room like you right now. And they're like, what? And I try to explain to them, it doesn't mean that you disappear as a person. It doesn't mean that you become enmeshed and lose yourself and all that. But your life where it all just oriented around you and your, it's, it's over now. There's a new way of being you. And it's a way that involves faithfulness to another. And you're about to say a yes that whether you realize it or not means a whole bunch of no's. And you think you're focused on the I do, but there's a whole bunch of I won'ts. And there's a whole bunch of I don'ts. I, I won't do this anymore. And I won't, I, I, because I said one great I do. And God wants Israel to know that your covenant with me, he's saying, is not like other nations and their relationships with their gods. See, in the ancient world, the more gods, the better. If if you were in this region, you needed this God. And if you wanted this kind of blessing, you had that God. And so the more gods, the merrier. It was sort of like baseball cards. Just collect them all. And God wanted Israel to remember when I called you, I wanted to be your one and only And your yes to me is supposed to mean a thousand no's. But Israel went looking to false gods for what they needed. And not only false gods, but also foreign powers. And so Hosea, God through Hosea rebukes them for chasing after Egypt and Assyria. And maybe we'll find security and prosperity there. And chasing after Baal and saying, Baal, if you could provide for us here. Hosea 9 verses 1 and 2, don't rejoice Israel. Don't celebrate as other nations do. He's telling you, don't do this. For as whores you've gone away from your God, you have loved a prostitute's pay on all threshing floors of grain. 
threshing floor and wine vat won't feed them. And listen to this phrase, won't feed them and the new wine will fail them. God's saying you're seeking for these things through false gods and it's going to fail you. And so if we were to zero in, zero in even more that sin looks like spiritual adultery, let's say one more thing. Let's say in spiritual adultery is idolatry. It's actually idolatry. It means giving your devotion to that which cannot ultimately deliver. Giving your devotion to that which cannot ultimately deliver. See, idols make a promise and they demand a compromise. They demand that you sort of sully yourself and, and, and violate your conscience and do things that you're not proud of and cut corners and you're like, well, I don't, I don't know, but this is pretty tantalizing. Idols will hold out a tantalizing end so that you can justify questionable means. They'll hold out a tantalizing end, but if you do, listen, this will just help your business. Just don't report all of the stuff. Or if you could just maybe, I mean, don't totally tell the whole truth because this, it'll be better for your marriage if you don't tell your spouse all the things that you were watching. Just, just tantalizing ends to justify questionable means. Idols always do that. They get us to kind of sign up for a compromise because of a promise. And actually, they seem to be effective in the short term. Hosea, at one point in the book, says, do the people say the prophet is mad? And it's probably not only because of his whole enacted parable thing of marrying a prostitute and having these children and all that stuff, but it's also because they would have heard him say, God is going to judge you. Your idolatry is not working. And they would have looked around and said, duh, au contraire. It's totally working. Look. It's where we've got safety, we've got security, we've got prosperity. What do you mean it's not working? We're pragmatists, Hosea. You're sort of up there in your kind of pie in the sky. Listen, man, we're just ordinary folks, Hosea. We're pragmatists, and this is working. And we're going to do what works. Hosea's like, I, I, it's, it's, it's not going to work in the end. What are our idols? You know, I, as a kid growing up in, in Malaysia, you don't have to work very hard to find the idols that are associated with Buddhism or Hinduism. You walk in someone's house and you know, there's a Buddha statue outside the front door. You walk in, there's a special dedicated room with incense and beads and all this stuff for Krishna or Ganesh or whatever. But here in the West, our idols are much more sublime. Not as easy to spot. You don't walk into a person's house and they're like, I worship money. Here's my altar. It's, it's much more subtle than that. And it's, obviously it's true all around the world. The invisible idols are the hardest to spot. The visible ones are easy. The most tragic images that I saw on Wednesday as a Christian were the images of conflating Christianity with a particular party or country. And so to see a Jesus saves sign as people are storming the Capitol in some sort of attempted insurrection was grievous to me. To see a cross and then a gallow. <laughs> to see a person draped in a Trump flag and then a cross in front of him. 
I vote for who you want to vote for. But the mixing up of political ideology with religious convictions is problematic. And that's the part of it, as one sociologist called political idolatry cloaked in religious language. I, I think it's wonderful to love a country. It's good to be patriotic. In fact, I, my love for America is what made me on the verge of tears Wednesday afternoon. I was trying to work, trying to do stuff, and just thinking about what was happening. It was bringing me to tears. Love for a country is a beautiful thing. But when it goes to another shade, and all of a sudden we start to imagine that God has a vested interest in the material prosperity of one country over another, or that God has a vested stake in the success of one party over another, now we're on dangerous ground. And maybe you're hearing that, you know, that's not me. This is for us to sort of hold out there and to say, God, what? What are we doing? Where, are, where am I in the midst of this? And you know the difficult thing, you guys, is it's always easier to spot someone else's idols than to confess your own. It's always easier to say, oh, well, I know what that's about. That's idolatry of this and idolatry of that. Great. Tell me about your idols. Oh, well, I mean, I, no, I mean, I'm okay. I want to give you a question today. How to spot an idol. Ask yourself this question. What am I counting on to bring me security or safety, comfort or peace, value or worth, prosperity or immortality that cannot actually deliver on its promise? What am I counting on for these things? For security or safety, comfort or peace? Now, can we get a measure of those things from lots of stuff in life? Of course you can. You can get a measure of comfort from a bowl of ice cream. (laughs) But can it actually ultimately deliver that? No. Can you get a measure of security and safety from a relationship or a friendship? Of course. But when you start to believe its promise of ultimacy, that's when you realize, oh no, I think I've got an idol. And one of the things you can do is pay attention to your own emotions and reactions. St. Augustine, a bishop in North Africa in the 400s, said in his confessions, he wrote how one of the ways he discovered his own disordered loves and disordered affections was a disproportionate sorrow over something that he had lost. And that's an interesting one. Sorrow is not bad. Sadness is not bad. Part of being healthy is being able to name those things. But when you discover in naming your sorrow, you're like, you know, I have a disproportionate amount of sadness over the loss of this thing. I wonder if that's good. I wonder if it's bad that I am like super down because of the loss of this. So that's one diagnostic. The the other thing to to, to kind of, the other emotions to sort of pay attention to is what about anger? What are the things I'm overly angry about? You're like, wow, this should mean this much to you, but your anger is like out here. Like, whoa, 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 what's this actually about? What's really going on? Have you overinvested in, and this is why sometimes you know, people have been like, you know, crazy mad about having to wear a mask in Walmart or something. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Has personal freedom become an idol? What, what are the things that we've sort of elevated and we've like, I've overinvested meaning or value into this and my anger's telling me something. 
My anger is telling me. So I can't name those things for you, but you with the Holy Spirit can wrestle with it. I'll give you a lighthearted example. I, um, I, I realized that during the course of, of, of um, the summer and the fall, I was going to bed with my iPad watching the sitcom on Netflix or something. I was like, I'll just watch an episode. I just need to decompress, just, you know, de-stress, whatever. And watch one. And, well, let's watch a second. Before you know it, it's like an hour and 20 minutes, you know, and you're like, oh, man, it's getting late. Now I got to go to sleep. And the lie is, the, the promise is, this is what you need to bring you rest. But what it actually does is it leaves you exhausted the next morning. And you wake up and you're even more sluggish and even more, and you're like, oh, but what's going on? This is kind of a lighthearted thing. But there are all sorts of things that, that we turn to for comfort, for rest. It's not actually delivering on it. Maybe we started listening to the headlines or news radio or started watching news because we're just, I just want to stay informed. But all of a sudden it's like an obsession because it's their job to keep you tuned in. Dun, 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 breaking news. Well, what now? It's actually just somebody else's opinion. You're like, okay, but that's breaking because they've not said that opinion before. <laughs> Maybe you started on social media because you're like, I just, I just want to stay connected with my friends and family. And then it's like, these people are so dumb. I'm going to share. I'm going to message them. Here's another. Yeah. And all, it just keeps going. It keeps going. It keeps going. And you're like, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on? I started out here because I thought it would bring X, Y, and Z, but instead it's delivering this. That's not it. That's how to spot an idol. The second thing Hosea says to us is Hosea shows us how our sin affects God. Listen to a few verses here from Hosea 2, the second chapter. Verse 7. She will go after her lovers, but she won't catch up with them. She will seek them, but she won't find them. And then she will say, I will return to my first husband, for I had it better than now. Listen to verse 8. She didn't know that I gave her the corn, the new wine, the fresh oil, that I gave her much silver and gold that they used for Baal. This is God sounding like a jilted lover, saying, I gave her this harvest, and she's using those very things to worship someone else. This is grievous to God. Verse 14, therefore I will charm her and bring her into the desert and speak tenderly to her heart. I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in devoted love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. Hosea shows us how our sin affects God. Maybe you grew up with the impression that God is really like a super fussy individual that has a whole bunch of arbitrary rules and then he's just mad about it. So the Old Testament to you is like rules and wrath. That's basically it and it's, that's just God. Here's the Old Testament prophet Hosea saying you need to locate rules and wrath within a much larger context and the context is love. I gave you these laws because I love you. I don't want you to get hurt. I, I, I get angry because I'm hurt by the way you've treated me. You see, friends, God is a lover. God is a lover. And these tender, intimate ways of speaking to Israel in Hosea is a way of saying, I'm not distant from you. I'm not an arbitrary rules maker. I'm not a computer program that keeps sending you error messages. 
incorrect, blah, blah, blah. please delete, you know, whatever. You're like, ah, pop-up windows. Remember those? God's not an automaton just saying, that was not good enough. Try again tomorrow. God is not Dr. Spock, coldly rational. It's funny because the Greeks, their vision of the gods was these gods are above humans and, and, and they don't really care about humans. In fact, if the gods were, the gods had all the passions and wars and fights and whatever they did affected the earth. So if the gods were at war, there would be thunder and lightning. That's how the Greeks saw the world. The Hebrews saw the world differently. They said, it's not that what the gods do affect humans, it's what humans do affects God. And so in the Old Testament, you see God looking out at his people and saying, no, 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 don't do that. Oh, no, 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 no. God is a weeping father. God is a wounded lover. God is deeply, deeply moved by our sin. Hosea keeps us from letting law court imagery dominate our imagination. It's true, other prophets will use the courtroom and trial and judge. But sometimes I wonder as Christians if we overemphasize the judge and courtroom imagery. God's a judge and I'm guilty. I mean, whoever fell in love with the judge? You know, that's not a Hallmark movie. But in Hosea, he's like, set that aside for a minute. I am your husband. You have betrayed me. And so the third message from Hosea is that Hosea shows us what God will do with us when we are unfaithful. Now we return to the question that we opened the sermon with. What will God do when he finds unfaithfulness in us? Hosea 11 verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I quit you? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adama? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart winces within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I won't act on the heat of my anger. I won't return and destroy Ephraim. I love this. This is God saying, see, in our, in our day, in our sort of limited, finite human mind, we think either God is angry and vindictive or he's never angry. He's just, you know, popcorn and rainbows and gumdrops. And the Old Testament says, no, he is angry but it's because he loves you and he will not in the end act out of that anger. He says, I'm not gonna act in my anger. I won't return to destroy Ephraim for I am God, not a human being. We have difficulty being angry and not sinning. That's why Paul will say the wrath of man can't produce the righteousness of God. But God's like, I'm not like that. I'm not capricious and petty. No matter what Richard Dawkins said about the Old Testament God. I'm not petty and capricious and vindictive. I'm not like a human being. I won't come in harsh judgment. Hosea 14 verses 4 through 8. I love this. Hosea 14 starts with this plea. Return, O Israel. Come home, O Israel. He says, I will heal their faithlessness. Verse 4. 
I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will cast out his roots like the forests of Lebanon. His branches will spread out. His beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like that of Lebanon. They will again live beneath my shadow. They will flourish like a garden. They will blossom like the vine. Their fragrance will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, I love this. He starts to address them personally. Ephraim. What do idols have to do with me? You know what God is saying? He's saying, when you come home, don't treat me like you treated Baal. Don't treat me like an idol. There's two versions of idolatry in the Old Testament. One is to worship a false god. The other is to treat the true God like you were treating the false gods. And this is what he means. He's saying, when you interacted with these false gods, it was all transactional. If I bring this offering, will you bring the rain? If I do this, will you bring prosperity? And how tempting is it to approach the true God that same way? To say, okay, Jesus, new year. We're coming through light at the end of the tunnel with this pandemic. So Jesus, if you would just do these things for me and for my family and for my business, then I will... Sign up to serve in children's ministry <laughs> or whatever. I'll do these things, but they're God, if you, and we want to approach God like it's a transaction. Listen to me, friends. Hosea says, you've profaned the act of sex by using intimacy as a tool of manipulation. And the lesson is, don't you dare treat me like that. God says, don't ever treat intimacy as a means of manipulation. Don't come to me. I don't want you to be transactional. I want to be relational with you. I want to actually love you. I don't want you to say, well, God, I did my time. I paid my tithes. I, I serve. I gave to the needy. Anything else? Am I good? You and me, we're good. God's like, what? I'm not, that's, we're not, that's not even how this works. And sometimes people come to us as pastors and they're like, I'm just wondering, if I, have I done enough? Have I said enough prayers? Have I, have I been baptized? I mean, am I going to be okay? Am I good for the heaven thing? And it's like, I mean, yeah, sure, but that's not even it. God's not in, interested in your transactions. Pray this prayer and you too can have eternal life. God's like, do you get that? I want to be your husband. I want to be in relationship with you. Ephraim, what do idols have to do with me? It is I who will answer you and look after you. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit comes from me. Verse 4, hear it again. I will heal their faithlessness. You know, the Old Testament is built on the foundation of covenant. God rescues Israel, makes a covenant with them. The covenant gets renewed. And the early, the foundation of the Torah, the first five books, is God made a covenant with us. Woo! So let's be faithful. Joshua ends by saying, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And you're like, woo! Except the Old Testament doesn't end there. And the longer you keep reading, the worse it gets. And by the time you get to Hosea, you're like... I don't think we're good at this covenant thing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. And even in the Old Testament, we understand that covenants are often with a greater party and a lesser party. So the great God with the lesser party, the nation of Israel. 
They're unfaithful. (laughs) And Hosea is God's way of saying, you're not fit for covenant. You're not fit for covenant. You can't be faithful. But I will be faithful anyway. But I will be faithful anyway. You can't live up to your promises, but I will be faithful to mine. You can't stay, but I will never leave. Hosea is God promising something better than what we thought of of covenant. And as Christians, we know that the story goes on and we discover not only will God be faithful when we are unfaithful, but God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, comes to be faithful on our behalf. You're like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Not only will God be faithful, but God will come to be faithful on our behalf. Jesus is the faithful Israelite. Jesus is the faithful Israelite. If you just read Hosea, you're like, well, it's bad. I mean, it's bad news, but kind of good news. You're like, right. But it gets even better when you discover Jesus. Not only is God faithful, he's faithful on your behalf. And so Paul says in Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us because while we were still moderately faithful, while we were still not really that bad, while we were still not as bad as those people, <laughs> while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The New Testament theologian John Barclay at Durham puts it this way. He says, Paul goes out of his way to underline the total absence of worth on the human side. <laughs> Doesn't sound like good news, but it actually is. The total absence of worth on the human side. No fitting features can be traced in the recipients of God's love. No fitting features. Not even in their hidden potential. Some of you are like, I know I was a sinner, but I'm doing pretty good, right? I mean, surely I've made good on God's salvation. That's not why he saved you. Is it true that God wants to make us faithful? Absolutely. That's why God said, I will heal your unfaithfulness. I will make you a faithful people. But that's not why I saved you. I didn't save you because you had so much potential or because you could sort of somehow repay and you could say, God, thanks so much. I'll take it from here. God doesn't save us because of past performance or because of future potential. God saves us because he loves us. He saves us because he loves us. God does not deliver because of performance or potential. He saves us because he loves us. And maybe this morning you're watching this, you're sitting in the room here, and you're thinking, I'm kind of living with some consequences here. Israel did get raided by Assyria. There are times when the consequences cannot be escaped. But what we can experience even in the midst of it is God's redemptive love. God's faithful, unfailing love. In fact, at one point in Hosea, he says, I'm going to put a hedge of thorns around you. As a way of saying, you might wander over here, I'm going to make it kind of prickly for you. And you're going to try to go over here, and I'm going to say, ah, no, not working. Until you finally come to your senses. 
Before there was a prodigal son in Luke 15, there was a prodigal wife in Hosea. And the same God who calls Israel back through Hosea calls you home today. Just come back. Just come back. Whatever you're turning to. Innocent stuff, small stuff, big stuff, just come back. Don't put your trust here or your love here or your devotion there. Come home. Did you bow your heads this morning? So we get ready to come to the Lord's table. I want us to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts, to say, God, where have we been unfaithful? Where is unfaithfulness to us? And I hope you know by now, by the end of this sermon, that there's no shame in it. We're all unfaithful. We're all unfaithful. And to be able to name it is not to be alone, but is actually to be in the company of the people of God. And to say, Lord, I, I, I need you. I thank you for your unfailing love. I thank you for Christ himself. And so would you begin to invite the work of the Spirit this morning?